This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. So when I was in eighth grade, my science teacher invited our class to participate in a national competition sponsored by Duracell batteries. And we were supposed to invent something, didn't matter what, that was powered by batteries and submit it for a chance to win a savings bond. And so I had a partner for this project, and we decided that we were going to invent a battery-powered air freshener. It was during the period of time in the 90s where Glade plugins were really popular, and there was a commercial with a little jingle that I'm not going to sing for you. Uh, but it, it, it was this device, and you would plug it in to the wall, and there were these gel cartridges that you put in, and it would heat up the gel cartridge and then make your room smell like apple cinnamon or whatever. And so the only way we could think of to heat up the gel packet was with a little incandescent light bulb. So we rigged up this little plastic casing and the light bulb and the gel packet and a little switch, and we were so proud of it. And then the time came to present it to the class. We're so proud of our invention. We called it Durasmell. I can't imagine why it didn't take off. But anyway, we go to present it to the class, and we realized that we didn't really have a plan for the part of the project where we had to say what the problem was that we were trying to solve. And we, we, we quickly tried to talk through it and see what we were going to say, and it, and it ended up coming out something like this. You know when you're camping, and you need a light in your tent, and it also smells bad? Dura-smell. Or, you know when there's a power outage and your plug-in air fresheners aren't working and your house smells bad and also you need a light? Dura-smell. We loved our little invention, but even we realized that we had created a solution with no problem. We had answered a question that nobody was asking. And unfortunately, I think sometimes as Christians, we do the same thing. We try to answer questions that nobody is asking. We have this good news. We have the gospel. And it is. It really is good news. Unlike my lousy invention, it actually answers so many questions that people have. But what we do sometimes is this. We lock in on one implication of the gospel. And when we share the good news with someone, we might say something like, if you trust in Jesus, you can go to heaven when you die. And that's true. And, and it's good news. But what if the person we're talking to isn't asking that question right now? There might be somebody asking that question. But what if they're asking a question that has to do with the here and the now? We might end up talking past each other. Now, I want to be clear that... Our gospel, our good news, I'm going to use those words interchangeably because they mean the same thing, doesn't change because of who we're talking to. The good news that we find in the Bible and the gospels is that Jesus is king. God is establishing his kingdom. And we call the first four books of the New Testament gospels because they tell us the story about how our king came and liberated us from sin and death. And so the gospel is about what Jesus did for us. That doesn't change. But have you noticed, as we've been studying the book of Acts, the sermons do change. The gospel messages are different. 
The message that Peter has for his Jewish context in Acts chapter 2 is very different from the sermon we studied last week that Paul gave in Athens, because they're talking to different people in different contexts, asking different questions. And often, the question that people are asking is, is this gospel good news for me? Is the gospel good news for me? And as Christians, I think sometimes we even ask this question sometimes. Something happens in our life that turns our world upside down. And we might ask, is this gospel still good news for me? And we need to engage that question. Because it's easy for us to say Jesus is the answer. But it might be hard for somebody to receive that if it feels like we're not listening to their question. Well, today's passage is unique among the passages that we've studied. I'm going to be honest, I didn't know what to do with it when Father Matt assigned it to me. Because the book is supposed to be the acts of the apostles, the things the apostles did. And they do very little in this passage. It's mostly about what the people in Ephesus did when the gospel came into their community. But I realized what a gift this was. Because we get this glimpse into the fears they have, the concerns they have, the questions that they might have. And so I want to take a look together. We're going to do a little exercise to, to, to listen to the questions that people are asking. And we're going to look at four questions that are being asked in this passage. The first question we see is, what about my quality of life? So the story starts in, in Ephesus. Ephesus was a significant uh, city in the ancient world, one of the most important trading cities. And it was famous for being the temple, for ho hosting the temple of the goddess Artemis. And people would come from all over the known world to this temple to worship, and then they might go to the shop of a man named Demetrius, who's a silversmith. And he makes these silver shrines that depict some aspect of the temple so that they can take a little piece of that temple home with them to wherever they came from, and they can continue worshiping Artemis at home. And Demetrius realizes something. Paul has been preaching the gospel in Asia, and people are starting to believe, and he realizes, wait a minute, this is threatening my way of life. What about my way of life? And so he gathers together all the tradesmen who benefit from this. And he says, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Demetrius correctly realizes that the implications of Paul's message are that if Jesus is Lord, then Artemis is not. And it's going to cut in on his bottom line. He's asking the question, what about my way of life? And that's a still relevant question today. That's a question that people still need to ask. What about my way of life? Because salvation is a free gift, right? We don't do anything to earn our place in the kingdom of heaven. But sometimes the gospel is costly. Because what happens is when we decide to follow the way of Jesus, we begin to realize that there may be some things in our life that we have to leave behind 
because they're incompatible with being citizens of the kingdom of heaven. It might change the way that we feel like we can spend our money. Because when we realize God's heart of compassion for the poor, we realize we can't spend our money the way we used to. It might change the way we run our business. Because we realize that the power that God has given us is to be stewarded for the sake of others. And we realize, I got to make sure I'm paying my employees well and treating them well. It might impact our relationships. Sometimes when someone comes to to Jesus, there's this strain as values change. And it can put a strain on relationships. Or maybe even there might be someone with a romantic relationship. Somebody that they really like and it's going really well. But for one reason or another, the relationship is not compatible with God's plans for citizens of the kingdom of God. And the gospel ends up being costly. And we can't just say, you know, don't worry about it. You can just, you can just, just do what you want to do and then ask for forgiveness. Demetrius, just keep making those silver shrines and then ask for forgiveness every time. It'll be okay. That's not what the Bible tells us. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And we see that throughout the New Testament, Jesus' disciples give up things to follow him. Paul gave up his life as a, an esteemed religious teacher in Jerusalem to follow Jesus. And so we might ask the question, how can the gospel be good news if it is so costly to me? This is how we can say that. Jesus changes what's important to us. Paul, who gave up so much for the gospel, says this to the elders in Ephesus in the next chapter, Acts 20, 24. He says, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul realized that Jesus is so much better than anything that he lost. This Lord who loves him and gave himself for him is so much better. Jesus talked about the gospel as like a pearl of such great value that when somebody discovers it, they go and sell everything that they have eagerly in order to gain this pearl. Demetrius is right. The gospel will cost him. But what Paul has discovered and what so many of us have discovered is that Jesus is so much better than anything we might lose. Well, there are some other people in Ephesus who aren't so concerned about their material losses. They're concerned about something else. And this is our second question. What about my cultural identity? Demetrius gives this speech to the the tradesmen, and, and he goes on. He says, and there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, They were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! A little later on, after they've gathered a mob and they're all in the the, the arena together in the theater, uh, uh, there's a a Jewish person who tries to stand up and and, and address them and explain what's going on. And when they realize that, that he's different from them, that he's not Ephesian, they yell for two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! For two hours straight. And I think it's telling that they're saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. 
They feel like their cultural identity is at stake here. I looked at one of the commentators on this passage, and he observed that in Ephesus, the worship of Artemis was so core to the life of the city that it impacted the civic life, the economic life, the social life. And so a threat to Artemis felt like a threat to Ephesus. Now, in the Western world, we tend to compartmentalize our lives, right? We have our religious life, our economic life, our social life, etc. But in much of the, much of the world and, and throughout history, this has not been the case. If you talk to a Muslim in the Muslim world, and, and you were to ask him, would you like to become a Christian? Do you know how that comes across? So it comes across as, would you like to become a Westerner? Because for, for him, his whole world is wrapped up in not, it's not just a set of religious beliefs, it impacts his relationships and his, his, his culture and his, his economic practices and all of these things are all wrapped up in Islam. And he associates Christianity with the Western culture. And I think if we're honest, we might have to say that sometimes we associate Christianity with Western culture. Never mind that it started in the Middle East. But because our culture has been so influenced by Christianity over time, we think that there's no tension between our culture and our faith. But throughout history, as the gospel has entered into cultures, there have been aspects of those cultures that have been hospitable to Jesus and his teachings, and there have been other aspects that have been in tension with the gospel. And so as Christians, we end up having to sift through our culture to figure out what we can hold on to and what we have to let go of. This is an activity that immigrants are well familiar with. I grew up in another culture. I spent most of my childhood in the Philippines. And every morning at my school, we would line up for our assembly and we would sing the national anthem. And then we would say the Panatang Makabayan, the Philippine uh, Pledge of Allegiance, the Patriotic Oath. And it went something like this in English. I love the Philippines. It is the land of my birth. It is the home of my race. It protects me and helps me to become strong, joyful, and useful. And it goes on to to talk about obedience to parents and becoming a law-abiding citizen. And as a kid, I had to sift through that because I did love the Philippines. I did want to grow up to be strong and joyful and useful and a law-abiding citizen and all of that stuff. But it wasn't the land of my birth, and it wasn't the home of my race. There was a sense in which I was at home in the Philippines. And there was another sense in which I wasn't. I was a a foreigner. This has been the story of Christians from the very beginning. There's a a second-century letter called Letter to Diognetus, and we don't know exactly who wrote it. But he writes this, Christians are indistinguishable from other men, either by nationality, language, or customs. They do not inhabit separate cities of their own or speak a strange dialect or follow some outlandish way of life. He goes on a little later and he says, any country can be their homeland, but for them, their homeland, wherever it may be, is a foreign country. There is a sense in which the gospel is a challenge to our cultural identity. We can be Americans and we can be proud of it, But when we enter God's family, we become Christians first, and then Americans or DuPagians or Chicagoans or Guatemalans or Nicaraguans or Nigerians second, right? It it shifts 
our priorities. The alternative to that, if our, say, country of origin or our cultural identity becomes our primary identity, well, then what we end up with is nominal Christianity, where Christianity is a vestige of our, of our identity. And so as people who are primarily Christian, we here in the United States have to sift through our culture. We might have to reject a definition of freedom that is the ability to do whatever I want whenever I want to do it in favor of a Christian vision of freedom, which is freedom from slavery to sin and death and freedom to serve God and serve others. We might have to let go of a cultural notion that a person's ability to maintain a quality of life or a meaningful existence is based on their intellectual or physical capacity. And so we might find ourselves compelled to advocate for people impacted by disability or for the unborn. We might have to push against a culture that wants to drive us deeper and deeper into our digital lives. And we might need to pull back and say, but God gave us bodies and he likes them. And he wants us to engage with one another with the bodies that he gave us. At the end of the day, even if the gospel is a threat to our cultural identity, and in some ways, no matter where you're from, that will be the case, it's still good news. Because what Jesus gives us and what we hold together with our cultural background is this identity that is richer and more permanent than anything that we could imagine. So there are concerns about material ramifications, concerns about cultural identity. And then there's a third concern, a third question. What about the mob? So at the end of uh, Demetrius's, uh, I almost said sermon, it kind of is a little sermon. Uh, Demetrius's uh, statement here, it says, so the city was filled with confusion. This is in verse 29. And they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. And then a little further down in verse 32, it says, Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. So there are a bunch of people that just show up because there's a crowd. There's a mob forming, and they're all mad at Gaius and Aristarchus, so they must have done something wrong. And maybe they don't want to be on the wrong side of the mob, right? Because the best way to not get on the wrong side of the mob is to join the mob. And so they just all kind of joined in. Now, you know, we don't usually have mobs running around our, you know, city of Wheaton today. But we do still have mobs of ideas, media mobs or social media mobs. And I, I don't want to confuse this with, you know, when there's a public event that happens and there's an outcry and people are really concerned about it and like speaking into it. That's not what I mean. What I mean is when you have these kind of movements of ideas where without any real engagement, they're saying things like, Christianity is bigoted and oppressive. And the, and the tragedy is, is that actually we could probably have a good conversation about that because there have been ways in which Christians have lived in, in ways that are in tension with our highest ideals, with what God has called us to. There have been ways that we failed and we probably could have a good conversation about that. 
But mobs don't operate in the arena of reason. And so notice when Paul wants to go in and kind of engage, his friends pull him back because you, you can't reason with the mob. The mob operates on the principle that might is right. So what do we, what do we even do? I'm not going to talk about this too much because I did talk about it some three weeks ago. But what we don't do is come up with a counter mob to build our own mob, to, to, to battle with the other mob. Paul says in Philippians, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And we see this throughout the book of Acts. Paul and Peter, they face vitriol and they respond with reason. We treat people as individuals loved by God who have questions, who have concerns. Maybe we pull them aside from the mob and we have a conversation about what their concerns are. What we don't do is just take for granted that whatever the mob is saying is true. Because if Jesus is king, then it means he gets to decide what is good and true and beautiful. Those things aren't decided by whoever has the most clout. If Jesus is king, it means the mob doesn't have the last say. If Jesus is king, we have a foundation for our lives that isn't on the sifting sand, shifting sand of popular opinion. Jesus himself faced a mob, and he was vindicated at his resurrection from the dead. And we can have confidence that if we trust in him, we too will be vindicated on the last day in our resurrection. So yes, the gospel is still good news if popular opinion says that it isn't. Well, there's all this chaos, right? There's a mob and all these people with all these concerns. And into the chaos comes the voice of reason, the town clerk. And he brings us our fourth question. What about the way things have always been? The town clerk seems like an ally here because he's trying to get the people to settle down and not riot. There's some self-preservation involved. He knows that if, if there is a riot, he as the town clerk, who's like the liaison between the local government and the Roman officials, is going to be held accountable. So he tries to settle them down. He says, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that this city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis? You've been shouting it for two hours. And of the sacred stone that fell from the sky. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, he takes them for granted, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. The reason he's not up in arms against Paul is that he doesn't think he's a threat. He doesn't think that the gospel is actually going to shake things up for Ephesus. He just wants the status quo, and he thinks it's going to happen whether or not the gospel is there. I think even as Christians, it's possible for us to ask this question, what about the status quo? What about the way things have always been? Sometimes I think as Christians, we want a gospel that isn't going to shake things up too much for us. We're willing to make peace with a belief system that we can adhere to that isn't going to isn't going to change anything for us. We want the same life that we have, but better, right? More inner peace and more energy during my day because I meditated in the morning. We want healing without surgery. We want grace 
without repentance. And what we end up with is an anemic version of the gospel. H. Richard Niebuhr describes it this way. A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not good. It's not good news for us in spite of the fact that it changes the status quo. It's good news for us because it challenges the status quo, because it changes things, because the status quo is broken. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin has entered into all of the aspects of our society, and we need the gospel to come and change us and change our communities and change our societies and our churches. And sometimes this is painful, but it's going to be more painful if we continue in our broken ways of living. It would have been much worse for Ephesus. Eventually, Artemis did lose her place of prominence, but it would have been much worse for Ephesus if she had kept it. We need the gospel to change things in us. These concerns, these questions that we see in this, in this chapter, they're not comprehensive. And I hope that as you engage with the people in your life, that you might take some time to maybe ask the Lord, how can I listen to them better? And then do it. Listen to the questions that they're actually asking. You might hear questions like, why is there all this injustice, and what are Christians doing about it? They might ask questions like, why did the church hurt me in that way? We need to engage these questions because they need to know how the gospel is good news for them. Is the gospel good news for the young black man in the Austin neighborhood? Is the gospel good news for the wealthy suburbanite who has a comfortable living and doesn't seem to need anything? Is the gospel good news for the single mom who's just trying to raise her kids and provide for them and give them a good home? Or the refugee family who just arrived from Eritrea right before COVID happened? And there are all these questions. Is the gospel good news for me? And as Christians, we believe that the answer is unequivocally yes. But please, let's listen to their question. And that goes for us too. We need to pay attention to our own questions. We don't need to push them down. Jesus can handle our questions. The book of Psalms is full of people just asking God questions. How long, O oh Lord? We can talk about them with a trusted brother or sister or with a pastor. Because I do believe that this gospel that we find in the Word of God is good news for you, and it's good news for me. It's not always easy news, but it is so good. And you know what? We haven't even gotten to the best part yet. Because the Bible tells us that the day is coming when the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world will be the same thing. And there will be no more pain, no more suffering or sorrow or injustice ruling in our world. And in that day, there will be no doubt in anyone's mind that the gospel is good news for you and good news for me and good news for everyone. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. 
As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.